0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for checking out another episode of the WeVA podcast. I'm super excited to welcome Dennis Zhu, co founder of Mem. Mem is one of the most exciting note taking softwares out there. And I think uh, with this latest boom in large language models, you know, GPT-4 and all this, this kind of knowledge management, like the next generation of note taking and just how you organize your information is one of the most exciting applications. And so I'm so excited to hear Dennis's ideas and uh, how you're thinking about these ideas. So, firstly, Dennis, thank you so much for joining the Weavea podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Connor. Awesome. So, could we maybe dive in with kind of the the founding vision of Mem, like this? What's new? Yeah. with, Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think you know the the story goes back pretty far. Um, you know, back in 2014, actually, my, my co-founder and I, um, we uh, we were both doing our freshman year internships, right? and we were, sing- we, we were sitting at a restaurant. And, uh, you know, I pulled out my phone, and I said, given all that, you know, given how large our digital footprints are, um, given all that our phones actually know about us and capture about us, it's, isn't it incredible how little that we can actually leverage that information and that knowledge in order to actually then help us do things in our day-to-day lives? Uh, even as simple things as, you know, remembering... Um, remembering things that we wrote down in the past before, which fundamentally is what note-taking is about, right? And, and, and that's kind of like what we started with, which is, you know, what is this universal behavior that every single person at some point in their life does, whether they write it in a, in a note or, or they do it by sending, you know, a text to themselves or whatever that is um, to, to, to simply help remember things. And that was kind of like the, you know, the, the origin and and the beginning of a lot of those ideas. And, uh, one of the things we imagine is, well, what if you could actually then, uh, create the structured representation, we called it the me API, right. Where, Mm -hmm. you know, you could carry this identity of you, right. Anywhere that you would go. Um, and, you know, essentially compiling notes into, into knowledge, into the structured knowledge graph, this personalized knowledge graph, um, and and yeah, that's 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 kind of how a lot of the, the, the idea began. But um one of the things that we we've kind of always known is that you know notes were would be where we start. Um but the vision has always kind of been far bigger than that, right? It's um, like what we're building on them is basically it's a personalized knowledge assistant for every individual, for every team, every organization. Um and it's now obviously we live in a, a super interesting time. Where you know it feels like I've waited my whole life for this moment and technologies occur. Um, <laughs> we've always had you know there's always been things that machines have been better at humans at. you know we've known that for a long time, but those have always you know the computation right they're they process information faster, but we've kind of always assumed that there were just you know uh, these dumb objects that required. Uh, instructions and very explicit instructions that, you know, mm. have to be programmed by, a, by, a, by an individual. And now I think we've finally crossed the threshold where machines actually understand human language. And, you know, we can talk about the semantics of whether it's just predi- predicting the next token, how much of that is understanding. But, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend recently and, and you know, he said something that was really interesting, which is, well, if you think about the objective function of a human, um, it's simply to reproduce, but think about all of the different things that we have developed over time that have nothing to do with reproduction, right? And all of these capabilities, right? And, and so, um, you know, regardless of all of that, the uh, the premise is now that we've machines that can understand human language, the, the power, uh, of this personal knowledge graph that you can build, you know, this personal assistant that you can build for anyone, um, is, uh, it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it's super fascinating. I think I first came across Mem when I would I'd write these like Twitter threads of AI papers and I'd see someone would comment uh, <laughs> at Mem it to save it to the to Mem and I and that's how I first came to yeah. get aware of this and seeing how it extends from just a note-taking app to how it connects with other data sources with, you know, Twitter being the <laughs> example I just gave, but you know, I'm sure you're knowledgeable about all these different data sources that your, you know, information could yeah. be hooked into and I, there's certainly a lot of to unpack in the story I, I really like that thing you said about the personalized uh kind of knowledge graph i like this idea. like we have this one idea kind of in Weaviate land called Ref2Vec, which is about how you you know have a user and then you interacted with these items and that's how you form an embedding for that user and some these yes, similarly, yes
1: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah and i can imagine these kind of like pages where you know say i create like a Uh, biology page and I start saving some things and then I have this embedding for biology and I hook that up into all these external sources as well and and it's like personalized.
1: Yeah and you know I think what you're getting at is like everything that we actually do nowadays is captured in one way or another digitally Um, and, and you can create really rich embeddings that represent you know the current context and context really ends up being in most, in almost like every assistive experience, what, what ends up being the, the, the key piece that's missing, right? Like if, you know, if you knew exactly what I was thinking at any given point in time, um, it's actually not, you know, ridiculously hard to, to surface the relevant information, um, at that point to you, but it's just, you know, do we know what you're thinking at any given point in time, right? So yeah, that, that, that idea is very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, and so I really kind of maybe for the sake of the podcast and being entertaining, I want to hop right into this GPT four topic. Like, how yeah. is this? Mm-hmm. Just kind of maybe the almost the clickbaity thing. Like, how is this going to change everything?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you know. I so so here's here's the big thing. I think you know I've heard a lot of people talk about how, um, you know, GPT four versus GPT three, and GPT three is kind of this, you know very vague term at this point because it's gone through you know three different evolutions and people have always called it gpt3 but you know the earliest versions of gpt3 <laughs> were nowhere near uh you know uh, well i guess you know like turbo 3.5 now or, or even da Vinci, you know two before that right and, and uh, i i think it's it's pretty interesting to me um i think there's there's a lot of use cases where you're not really going to notice that many differences between chat gpt and GPC four, um, and I think for a lot of use cases, it, it feels oh, it's like slightly better. It's it's definitely better. It's slightly better, but it's slower. Blah blah blah. Right. And then there's there's one thing in particular that that you know at least we've been experimenting with that we found um, that I think is groundbreaking and is obviously being slept on is just the ability um, for this to write code uh, and to write incredible sound code. <laughs> That is better than extremely experienced engineers can write when, you know, it has access to the entire Internet's worth of knowledge um, and all of that stuff, right? And, and so what becomes really interesting, obviously, when you have a system that can write code, right, is then all you need to do is give it an environment in theory. And I think this is why there's a lot of, you know, conversation around safety and, and, and mm. um, all, all of this stuff, right? Like AGI. Um, I have, I have opinions on, on some of those things, but I, I think what's, what's really interesting is if you can have something that can write amazing code and then you can give it an environment where it can actually execute that code. Now you actually do have this self-improving system that can, in theory, um, do anything and learn anything autonomously, right? Uh, you just have to kind of give it the right tools, right? So obviously, there's there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of thinking, a lot of um, I would say, I would say it's still like in the early days. Most of the definitely the experiences and 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 the products and and, and a lot of the infrastructure too is uh, in its toy phase still, um, but clearly mm-hmm. people have have you know awoken to the possibility. So I, I would just say the main thing with GPT four for me um, is the ability to write code. And then I think taking, you know, one step back, um, the, the way that I, I've described kind of this day and age to, to, you know, some cause a lot of my friends are like, Hey, like, I've been hearing about this, like, you know, GPT thing. I'm seeing a lot of it. And, um, I don't get it. Like, what, it, I mean, it's cool, right? Like, I, you know, there's like, what is it? And, and, and the thing that I would say is you have, when the internet first, you know, really reached scale, it made the cost of moving information effectively zero, approach zero. So the cost of distribution, right? And that's what enabled social media. That's what enabled, you know, blogs and like all oh, kind of like, you know, what people would call like web two, right? Um A lot of that stuff. And I think what has happened is now the cost of transforming information has gone to zero. Hmm. Um And that is like uh that's 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 really interesting obviously you know there are so many industries that are purely just (laughs) about transforming information so many professions that are about you know just transforming information i've i've heard there's already legal you know um legal and like you know legal companies and, and lawyers tend to be the latest to adopt new technology um but a lot of like you know Paralegals, junior employees are actually being replaced by this technology, um, even like already today. Um, and you, know, you have anything that involves moving, you know, taking, taking like all these ETL pipelines, ELT, anything that involves, you know, previously would have required uh, armies of engineers and, and engineering teams to both build and maintain um, a lot of that is now effectively free, right? So uh, I think we're still grappling with the implications of a lot of what that means um, and what that will mean. All I know is that I think things are going to, you know, get, get weird and we'll see. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I definitely want to uh, come back to that kind of like ETL data ingestion topic. But I think that idea to stay on that idea of how it can write code a little more, it's been yeah. absolutely mind blowing the ability of it like, uh, when we had Harrison Chase from Langchain on, uh, we were talking a lot yeah. about, uh, and also Bob Van Light, uh, CEO of WeVA, was we were talking about like the the way that it could maintain software, like you could see the errors and kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. maintain the software, and just the general idea of you know writing some code, executing it, seeing the output, and then chaining that to you know keep writing code better. Uh, yeah. Is yeah. So and and then um, I guess kind of one topic I want to come on in that writing yeah. code sense is like. So as I've been trying to adopt it in my life, I'm mostly <laughs> dealing with these big code repositories. So I'm thinking a lot <laughs> about like, how would the, like the Weaviate code base, which is even bigger than 25,000 tokens, like how do I <laughs> get, get it to navigate this kind of thing? And this is yeah. where I think a lot of these ideas, yeah, you know, like Langchain, Llama index on how do you. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and, and I think this is like where we're embedding um, you know, really plays a role too, right? I, I think the, also the whole world has kind of awoken to, um, to to embeddings over the past six months. Um, you know, we we we've been building, um, we actually started building on embeddings pipelines before we did actually any generative mm-hmm. stuff, and this was back in you know December of 2021, um, and, th- and this was you know back when the, the best available generative model was Da Vichy Two, uh, and it was at that it was at that point where it was like interesting but not actually useful. Um, you know, reliably useful yet, but the embeddings models were, uh, were, were obviously, you know, fascinating, right? Because it, in many ways, it wiped away, you know, years of compounding advantages that many search companies had, right? And that they developed like these, you know, proprietary technology uh, just for search. And then, you know, I think, uh, in, in a lot of ways, a lot of that is becoming commoditized, right? Uh, with embeddings, whether it's search or recommendation systems. Um, yeah, I mean, there's obviously still a ton of challenges building, you know, on embeddings with with each of those, but yeah, amazing. Far easier than before.
0: Yeah, I think, so obviously with the WeVA podcast, the topic of embeddings is like the the number one thing I want to talk to you about. And I'm so excited about like- I
1: I figured. (laughs) Yeah. so,
0: So with the, to come back into the design of MEM, I'm very curious about like how you think about kind of like chunking up, all the units in that go into the knowledge management and you know embedding it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean there's, you know, I think here's the really interesting thing. There's there's I think currently the primary school of thought um mm-hmm. where most people are is you just have this what I call like this like blob of vectors. Um mm-hmm. where you have you know vector index, you you vectorize any piece of information as long as you can represent it in text, although with multimodal models now, you know, um, I'm starting to make an appearance. I think that's going to be really interesting as well. But before before we go into that, um, and then you just dump it all in there and then you do a nearest neighbor search, right? And then you find, the you know, those things. Um, and I think that works for a lot of the use cases that we can think about immediately and can think about now. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of like the search use cases that actually already exist. Um, in the world of clothing, um, but what happens is you quickly start like for for any like real use cases that um, are, are, are deeper, you quickly start to run into the limitations of basically just this like one shot nearest neighbors. Like you know, that's what I get, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you run into that pretty quickly. And, and I think one of the things that we realized, and this is this is essentially like. You know how how we uh, I think how we think about building our infrastructure you know differently is embeddings are a key piece of the puzzle, um, but ultimately you also do need structured knowledge underlying it. So it's like you have embeddings that overlay. Um, in our case, it's a structured knowledge graph, right? That mm-hmm. we also use language models to build, um, right? So it's kind of like imagine this you know database, um, mm-hmm. this actual database. Um, like, you know, a SQL database that you're reading and writing to, right? Reading from and writing to. Um, and then you layer on embeddings on top of that. And now you can do things instead of just like these one shot, out find me, you know, the nearest neighbors. You can actually do deterministic, you know, multi-hop queries that require knowledge mm-hmm. of, you know, multiple different mm-hmm. things all at the same time. A lot of the things that, you know, I think um, things like Langchain, right? Also like thinks about, right? Um, but if you think about, you know, if, and i think this is all like you know developing but if you think about something like langchain um obviously one of the issues with it is because everything runs sequentially you know a it's uh expensive but i think that's you know going to become less and less of an issue uh, mm-hmm. but uh latency wise it's expensive right um so but imagine if you could actually convert a user input whatever that is right into a set of deterministic graph reads, right? Or, you know, Mm. database reads that we know are fast, right? Um, And and, then retrieve information that way. And then you, um, you know, blend that actually with uh, like a hybrid index using a netting. I think that's a lot of where where the world will actually head uh, long-term.
0: Yeah, I, that idea of like question decomposition, like are follow-up questions needed? Um I don't know if I'm yeah. going to remember this off the top of my head, but it's like, did Einstein use a laptop? <laughs> I don't know if it's Einstein, but like, yeah, uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Did, yeah, yeah. So you break it into the two questions to assemble it and yeah, and that and this kind of in the beginning of as I was listening, I, th- I thought we we're kind of getting into like the adding structure to vector search, and this topic I think is yeah. so fascinating, especially when you're adding mm-hmm. the large language model controller on top of this. Yes, like a, yeah, like a lot of yeah, like a lot of kind of weaved in the vector databases having support for the symbolic filters as well as the HNSW, yep. the vector index, and. It, like things like in our 118, Eddie and talked about the bitmap index, the speed of stuff and all these kind of things. And yeah,
1: so many yeah. so data structures, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that have embedding, that involve embeddings, but it's not just this like single flat blob, uh, yeah. Yeah, and
0: so I'm so curious about, this is actually something I'm talking with Harrison about privately is like, how do the large language models interface with these symbolic filters? Have you thought about this? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, so I think this is actually why the fact that it can write code, this is really and write write accurate code, um, really comes into play, right? Because now you can actually imagine you define a data structure, you define a, you know, a certain knowledge graph, um, then you can you can have the language models, you can teach the language models, right, so to speak, to know how to interface with it, and mm-hmm. to know how to query from it, and to know how to write to it, um, and you kind of take that whole process that would have been, you know, teams of engineers for each, you know, each pipeline and each transformation before um, into just like, hey. Uh, but yeah, so when
0: GPT first came out, uh, Bob had shown me this thing. He's like, he shows me his prompt sequence and he's having it write JSON. Like it populates the JSON dictionary. So it's yep. compatible to the next API call and all that was so fascinating. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think yep. that was a, a really great top coverage of like the GPT-4. And I, I really want to kind of transition to this next topic that's a pretty big one, which is the kind of fine tuning models versus zero shot debate. And I'm curious, especially with-
1: Yeah. Um. So, so my, my take on this um has been pretty, yeah, so, so here's my take. Um, I think it's clear we're at some point in the S curve of, the capabilities of these language models. Uh, I really don't know where we are on the S-curve. Are we near the end? Are we, you know, towards the beginning? If I had to guess, I would say there's no reason to believe that we're anywhere close to the to the top of it and that we're probably likely very much still in like the steepest part, right? And I think when we are in that scenario and, and if, we, if we just play back what has happened over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months and we assume that, you know, uh, things will continue in, in, in that way, then what's happening is every six months, literally every six months, there is a step change in capabilities. Hmm. Um, and so depending on what you're fine-tuning a model for, my, my opinion is if you're fine-tuning a model to improve its general capabilities, you know, with some... Piece, you know, of your own data or, or whatever that is, I think that's totally not worth it right now. Because I think what's going to happen is the next model is going to come out. It's not only going to be cheaper; it's going to be way faster, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's going to be way better. And all of the time and effort you spent in actually figuring out how to fine tune that model uh, will go to waste. Except, except, that, and I think you know, it's a, it's an important question to ask: like, what will not change? Um, and this is really, you know, once we do get to the top of the S and progress, you know, s- slows when we no longer have a new state of the art every six months, you know, mm-hmm. it takes longer. Uh, the actual, then at that point, I think fine tuning, squeeze the, you know, the additional 20 or 30%, you know, out of, uh, out of these models becomes actually really useful. And the question, the important question to ask, right, is like, what do you need by that point in time? Like, what is the thing you needed to act? What is the asset you needed to build over the course of that time in order to be able to do that? And obviously, you know, it comes down to, uh, you know, one way or another, some form of data, right? Um, and, you know, even that's obviously it's a loaded term in terms of like how you, you know, what is actually useful data, what is not. But, um, you know, depending on how how you define it, at, at the end of the day, it's the data is useful. The actual time spent in, in figuring out how to tune these models or even taking you know, off the shelf open source model to, you know, try to, you know, do something with that, to squeeze whether it's latency or performance out of it. I think a lot of the time doesn't actually make sense. Um, I think the, the difference is, um, if you take something like a, like a llama, you know, with Mm. alpaca, right. (laughs) I don't know if you saw that, that came out of Stanford. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously that's very interesting because now you can have things that actually just purely run on the edge, right? You know, run Mm -hmm. exclusively on your phone and that unlocks a whole new set of capabilities, um, that previously wasn't possible. Right. But if what you're trying to do is replicate a set of capabilities, um, I think, um, at least we, we, we shy away from, from, from fine tuning for that purpose. We do, we do actually do a lot of fine tuning. Um, but that's Mm -hmm. primarily to make, um, the The reason we do it is to uh basically get a smaller model to do the job of a larger model um mm-hmm. at lower latencies and that will just you know obviously that data set continues to scale um as you know as as new models uh as models improve so.
0: Yeah, I, I thought you said a lot of interesting ideas. Um, I think to quickly, t- I really like that S-curve thing you described with his step function of his doubling every six months. It doesn't make sense to put the effort into it. And Bob, sorry to be referencing you so much in this podcast, but he, he was recently on uh, Cohere's uh, Twitter. They had a talk where he said that basically he thinks that like 80% of these cases, the zero shot model it combined in a hybrid search with like BM25 lexical search, mm-hmm. that that will cover most of these search cases. Totally. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And I yeah, completely
0: yeah. agree with you. But I really want to come. There are two more topics that you mentioned that I think are so interesting. The llama alpaca thing, where it's like, <laughs> you know, it is related to the next topic of distillation, where you're trying to get the large model compressed into a smaller model. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I, I think the reason the alpaca thing is so exciting is because people are like running it on their phones, right? Like, uh, or yeah, yeah,
1: like, <laughs> it on their phones.
0: Yeah. 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 And it's like the idea of, I think when, um, when uh gpt when when davinci 3 came out it was something like two cents per uh i don't i don't know the exact price and like
1: it was it was more it was six cents per thousand
0: yeah it was it was pretty expensive to generate a lot of text so the thinking was like uh, you got to be so careful about how you do it but now as it's trending towards zero it's like these language models could have like these massive conversations with themselves and as i think about mem i think about this idea of you know i create a a, a workspace where I put everything I know about contrast of representation learning. And then I just have the language models talk to each other about like sample a paragraph, sample a paragraph and then
1: build new knowledge over time. And yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that idea I think is incredible. So, so I, I do want to come back to the distillation thing. Um, Maybe, yeah. maybe one topic to begin is I'm very curious about these kind of like ranking models so like the large language Mm -hmm. model could of course rank these documents with very high precision like if you have the query and then you have the top 10 it could give you a really great ranking uh so it is maybe i don't i don't know if it's like prying too much into exactly how the sausage is made but like how what kind of tasks are you thinking of distilling
1: from large language models yeah um so there's there's uh, that's one of them. Uh, w- what you just mentioned, uh, uh, you know, historically, I think in search it's been called like a, cr- uh, a cross encoder, uh, mm-hmm. and I think there's still a lot of value in, in you know cross encoders. But you can actually spin up like a uh, a purpose built cross encoder really easily, actually using you know kind of like a smaller uh, you know one of mm-hmm. these models, right? Um, and then you know it returns the log probs. You can you know, do interesting kind of math on top of that. Um, a lot of interesting things there but there's there's a lot of things where uh I'll give you one example you know someone says something um to their assistant right to their member system like hey do this for me or you know xyz mm-hmm. um but it's it's kind of you know if if we think about the assistant like as a person it's kind of unpredictable what you say to a person um and what mm-hmm. you say might have different intents sometimes um what you the Even within, you know, this is a huge problem within search, obviously, like search intent. Like, is it mm-hmm. is this a, a, a keyword based intent, right? Or is this like, hey, is this a vector intent? And then you, you like, you know, rank different things differently. Uh, maybe you even, uh, and this is a lot of our explorations is, um, what if you could create dynamic UIs, right? Because depending on what the person is asking you, depending on what the person is doing, um, there is actually totally a different representation of the information that is useful and valuable. Um, but you know, being able to even just like classify the intent of the message, let's say, um, obviously you use the the most impressive use GPT four on that, and it's it's going to get it right like almost you know uh, every time, assuming you also give it enough context and all of that stuff. But it's slow. It's slow. It's expensive. Can you actually really run it on a big query? Right. And so when you, when you have a, a, a task like that, that usually screams, okay, you know, fine tune is actually valuable, right? Particularly when latency and or cost is the issue and you're okay with causing, you know, brain damage to the language <laughs> model and being okay mm. with them forgetting everything else and only being able to do this thing, right? Because then you can take a much, much smaller model um to you know much yeah yeah to to basically just do that one specific task right Um, and then there's also like you know ways where you can use those models to generate training data for the smaller Mm -hmm. models and it Mm -hmm. gets really gets really meta but yeah
0: yeah that last one's my absolute favorite idea (laughs) i mean when you said the um the brain damage thing that interrupted my i love that topic so much that like. Because yeah. you when you fine tune it, this like catastrophic forgetting, how the robustness of it is gone now and yeah, that yeah, one's but crazy. it's very
1: good at one thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I kinda well, I, I do want to stay on the ranking thing, just a little mm-hmm. there's one question I have for you, especially as you know, mm-hmm. product focus with the mem thing is is this latency constraint and how you're thinking about it? because
1: the cross encoder is really slow
0: compared to yeah. you know, vector yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think there's a lot of things. Um, I think a lot of the innovation that's going to happen over the next year is going to be on the UX side. Um, you know, internally we call this like AI UX, which obviously you know what that means. Um, but it's, you know, to to give you one naive example, you look at what Bing does, right? Where you type something in and it's showing you some of the work that it's doing, right? Hmm. Um, I also saw this like in, in the Stripe. LLM, um, like for their documentation thing, they did some hmm. really interesting kind of like front end animations where first they would, because, um, well, they actually mirrored the steps of what happens, right? First they would retrieve a list of documents, they would show hmm. you those documents first, and then when the answer would actually come in, it would push those documents down. And as you know, it kind of tricks you into thinking, oh, actually, this is fast, right? Mm-hmm. Because something <laughs> is happening all the time. Um, and I think there's like, there's a lot of those tricks you can play, you know, kind of, (laughs) um, there, and then there's uh, separately, um, and this is where I think, you know, really having a structured knowledge graph, uh, in our case, uh, comes into play. Um, there's a, like, if you think about most of like what makes search fast, right? And search indexes, uh, it's just, it's pre-processing. Um, so if you actually have the data in a structured way, such that you can pre-process it, hmm. um, you know, into useful indices, uh, that's uh, another way to 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 make sure that certain things that you need to be fast are fast. So.
0: Yeah, that that little the, the knowledge graph topic is a funny one because with Weavea, it's not like a RDF technology with these tuples. Yep. <laughs> so, like, yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. rather talk about HSW, but. That is very interesting. Yeah. The knowledge graph, like, does Mem use things like Neo for Java or like Tiger Graph, those kind of things as well?
1: No, we we actually just we we build all of it on top of Postgres. Fascinating. And yeah. I
0: also saw this thing with uh, with Llama Index. It's they call it like Graph GPT, where you could just kind of do like one query. Yeah. So it's yeah. like a client side index. Yeah, yeah. Like take a th- take a thousand search results and they'll build a knowledge graph in memory, kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah
0: super cool so so maybe pivoting topics a bit i'm I'm very curious about the earlier we mentioned this idea of etl data ingestion to the kind of database part of it and yeah, um so yeah. i'm really curious about like i i fi- i find this like mem memet Twitter thing to be such a fascinating integration with how you flow data from Twitter into your knowledge management. And then, yeah. so I'm very curious, like, you know, obviously OpenAI's whisper has unlocked like a massive ETL. Now people can take YouTube videos, <laughs> podcasts, and just, you know, do it like that. Uh, and yeah. then GPT 4 So I'm also talking with Brian from unstructured about hopefully getting him on the podcast as well. And uh, like GPT 4 yeah, yeah. the ability of it to do OCR, right?
1: Images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I I wouldn't even call that OCR, um, Mm. because it's, um, at least the way I think about OCR is it just gives you kind of like a snapshot representation back, right? Um, this is kind of, it's, it's more like actually, it's, it's as if like a human could read the thing and then (laughs) you could, you could ask questions based on it and it just, um, works kind of through this like language model, right? It's, it's um, so it's, it's, it's the, the idea of multimodal like mm-hmm. the encoder being able to actually create a, a representation um, that is shared between text and images and audio and, you know, video. Cause if you think about kind of like what people are doing today, you know, this is another thing that I think is going to become obsolete pretty quickly with whisper, is people are doing that on YouTube videos, right? Um, and you know, it makes sense, but you end up losing so much information because you have, you capture mm-hmm. none of the, the visuals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of YouTube videos is the visuals. So, um, you know, you could transcribe and then you could try to stitch together the frames, right? From, you know, the, the actual visuals. Um, but if you could actually just go directly from an MP4 file format into the embedding that actually is in the same space as you know your text embeddings, uh, that's where things get really, really cool. Uh, and obviously, I think that's that's the future, right? So,
0: yeah, I think we just saw uh, runways. Is it called Gen Two? I'm sorry if I messed up the name, but the this video generation, generally, the idea of processing videos of so I, my kind of funny story with this is when I first started doing deep learning, I was a basketball player coming to grad school after basketball and after a failed basketball career. And, and so I was like, okay, how do I build a deep learning so- software app for basketball? And I had this idea, yeah, about, yeah. Well, you could probably extract all the highlights from the games using like convolutional yeah, yeah. networks. But the yeah. problem with that, well, like one thing, one problem of it, <laughs> quite a few problems, but like The image data, video data, it's so high dimensional. The idea of like compressing a Mm -hmm. minute video into a, let's say, 1500 dimensional vector. Do you think that kind of like we'll need to be more clever about how we're doing it?
1: I think, I think that's an issue. I, 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 so one of the things I learned about maybe, maybe this was llama or maybe this was something else. Um, maybe it was llama, but I I think one of like the fundamental innovations was it made it. Uh, it, it, it turned it from, you know, 16 bit, um, uh, like values, right, per vector to, um, to four bit values, right? And so it, it changed kind of like the, the, the granularity of, of what could be represented to basically just like eight values, right? Uh, um, mm-hmm. between negative one and one. Um, and that's really how they managed to get something so small. Um, and yet, it kind of keeps a lot of the performance. So I think I think there's some really interesting, you know, kind of compression techniques that we're we're just at like the very beginning of of discovering. So um yeah, I, I I'm I I have a feeling we'll we'll be able to get to that uh pretty soon.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I love that you brought that up. But one of the big feature, new features of WeV8 and 1.18 is adding product quantization, where, like you say, we quantize the vector values from 32 bits. That, or, well, there's, exactly. Yeah, yeah there's, there's like a couple parts to it, but I think something about quantization, there's kind of like two... At first, there is this thing called binary passage retrieval, where you sort of optimize the contrastive models with that tanh activation, so it's kind of zero one mm-hmm. naturally, and then you have this kind of binary vector that's longer, but captures information. I I think like quantization aware training is another thing that hasn't been realized as much because if you put it in, like instead of producing the vectors and now we're going to run k-means tile encoder on the vectors, maybe if you put that into the optimization, it's like one of these <laughs> interesting kind of yeah mm-hmm. fine tuning. Maybe there's something to like a hierarchical structure. <laughs> All these kind of these, are, yeah,
1: yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah.
0: This kind of idea of how do we, like one of my favorite topics in weve 8 Vector Database is like, how do you have a, like there's, we've done like a billion scale thing with like, you know, like sphere, which is kind of like copying the internet <laughs> and doing that kind yep. of thing. But yeah, the videos and all that. So maybe kind of even continuing on the kind of multimodal. I guess I don't know if this topic is too out there for these kind of things, but like, are you interested in these recent advances in robotics and say things like SayCan, RT One? Do you think that will have some kind of role in this as well? Uh,
1: I've been loosely following it, but honestly, I haven't uh, been closely following enough to, to be able to say anything insightful.
0: Uh, yeah, I, sorry. I think that was maybe too tangential to the topic. I, I actually one thing I think is really interesting with the knowledge management yeah. thing is like the biomedical thing. Let's actually pivot into that topic. So yeah, like, yeah. I, I think these kind of knowledge graphs, like this idea of having structure and unstructured, like just these like, you know, drug, drug, protein, drug, like mm-hmm, gene mm-hmm. protein interactions. And this kind of graph structure, right? I think it's the, like the one example of a citation is, there's this paper called prime KG from Harvard, from the biomedical informatics. And it's it, like, if people are out there are looking for like an example of what I'm talking about, prime KG is like, the best one I know of, and it's like this kind of way. Like, I I wonder if like with this knowledge management software like Mem, do you think you would have like your genome, your proteome in a, in a in like your note taking software?
1: That, I mean, that's that's basically the um, yeah, that, that, that's basically the vision, right? Which is, you know, really we started with notes, and I think over the course of this year, it's going to become pretty clear to people as. Uh, with some of the new releases that we have coming coming out that, um, like notes are just kind of one component of the type of information that you can capture. Um, and so, you know, we're building a ton of uh, pipelines, right, from like manual data syncing uh, or sorry, automatic data syncing, of you know, your emails, you know, your calendar, like Slack messages, all of that stuff, right, to the one time, hey, I have this PDF, I have this video, I have this thing. Um, you know, uh, kind of like drag and drop in right uh, into that. So Mm -hmm. really, yeah, the the idea is how do we create this universal knowledge graph that represents your entire world of information? Um, And then how do we give you the power of actually being able to hold that in your hands, right? Because I think if you think about it in the past, that's been held in the hands of advertisers Mm -hmm. who then use Mm -hmm. that to target us with ads, right? But if you could carry around, you know, uh, one thing that I think this is on our blog too that we we've thought about is, you know, you can imagine you sign into Netflix or Netflix, right, with them, um, you know, uh, in in twenty twenty four, and your experience is automatically just personalized for you, right? And today you sign in with you know whatever you sign in with Google, you sign in with all of that stuff, and you know nothing happens. You just manage to sign in. Um, but if we could actually build that personal knowledge graph, um, then it becomes really interesting. So,
0: yeah, I think that's exactly what you've unlocked with mem and it, and this kind of like you have an embedding of you that you take everywhere that comes from all sorts of things. Like me from the YouTube videos I like are now synced up with the Amazon things I'm buying and other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm also very curious, like, how you think about, like, privacy, preserving AI. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, is, do you use things like federated learning? Do these kind of topics come up?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that obviously we're, we're super um, aware of on, on at least kind of the research side. Um, I think the, the – obviously, the topic is super fascinating, right? Like, being able to actually – you know run inference on um on encrypted data right would be would be kind of the dream unfortunately it's it's not really possible right now um i think everything that uh it's it's all you know basically at the the viability level of of you know being research projects right so um eventually i think that's the, that is where the world is is, is going to head though um you know whether it happens in 2025 2030 uh, you know, mm-hmm. twenty thirty five. That's that's to be determined. But yeah.
0: yeah, amazing. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for this tour of these technical topics. About, you're so knowledgeable about this, and this was such a fun conversation. Um, maybe to kind of wrap things up, could you talk about like kind of your experience founding this company? Like, how's it been? It's super yeah. successful and all that. And well,
1: I, I mean, I feel like we're at just the very beginning of the journey. Um, I mean, it's especially you know, given what the kind of the, 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 vision is for, you know, the end products, if there even is, is this <laughs> idea of an end product. Right. But um yeah, it's, I think it's been, you know, I would say one of the things that's been really interesting for us is from the very beginning, we kind of knew that um this was the vision, this idea of, you know, how do I build this like personalized knowledge graph that I can take with me anywhere? Um, and I think when you have that, you know, in mind at the very beginning, um, I think it's allowed us to be a lot more, um, I think, patient, right? And, and make certain investments that, uh, for example, in the knowledge graph, right? Because um, that's one of those things where actually building this structured knowledge graph that you know, and then teaching language models to know how to interact with it um, is 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 quite the build, right? It's it's uh, very complex. Uh, working with a lot of evolving technologies, kind of all at the same time, um, but having you know, just knowing that hey, that's this is we have to do it because this is this is why we started the company. This is why we're doing it. Uh, I think has been um, you know one of those things uh that have you know made us pretty unique in in terms of how i think most startups operate so um that's been you know uh, it's been a really interesting part of the journey obviously in the middle uh it's been you know around three years so far in the middle of the journey is when gpt3 really became (laughs) a thing um and it totally um i still remember this like this happy hour that we had and this was during COVID and we had these virtual happy hours. And one of them was just like, when it was when the first, you know, Da Vinci one first came out and we just like sat on, you know, in the playground, he's playing with it, uh, you know, cause I got, I got access to it. We're like, Oh, this is, this is kind of interesting. This is, you know, this is really cool. Um, and just seeing this evolution and this, you know, this revolution happen over the course, um, you know, like, of this company developing and realizing kind of just how much of an unlock it is for a lot of the things that we were doing um has has truly been a sight to behold. Right. So, you know, I couldn't be more exciting to to be building what you know what we're building right now. So
0: Amazing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm also so excited to see what you're building. And Dennis, thank you so much for joining the WeVA podcast and contributing all this knowledge. It's been so interesting to be talking with you. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you.